This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero emissions energy, zero emissions buildings and zero emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radioteam at beyondzeroemissions.org. Good evening, everybody. Tonight's show takes us to Marrakesh. We have a guest who has just returned from there. He's Mr. Martin Wilder from Arena. And we also have Christine Milne, who is observing from the sidelines as an international green. We were going to have Josh Schreidenberg, but he sent his apologies to me at the last minute, saying that he just couldn't fit it in, and he's just back from Marrakesh too. This historic climate treaty, signed in Paris in 2015, was ratified and put into action at Marrakesh this month. Apparently they didn't know that everyone would ratify, but they got a a good enough number to say that treaties ratified. Even though there was a huge shadow cast over the whole thing by the U.S. commitment, about the U.S. commitment, by the election of Donald Trump. Here is what Dr. David Suzuki, another friend of the Climate Action Program, said. I thought I'd find something heartening to say because everyone's thinking, oh, Donald Trump's going to tear up this treaty and what will we do? They really emit an awful lot of carbon. Suzuki said, we mustn't let fear overcome us. It's time to stand together to work for justice and human rights, for liberty and a cleaner environment, for governments that serve the people. The US election has brought things to a head and the boil is erupting. It's more important now than ever before to come together to heal the wound. So I thought that was, you know, a good image. Keep that idea. It's a boil that's erupted and now we're going to heal the wound. At Marrakesh, every country which has ratified the Paris Climate Agreement received a report card and Australia was placed in a group of very poor performing countries like Saudi Arabia, both on the policy level and on the actual implementation of carbon reduction. We even dropped in terms of energy efficiency. So I'm here to find the path forward. And our first guest is Christine Milne, who was the leader of the Greens in the Australian Parliament and is now part of the International Greens. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Climate Show, Christine. Thanks very much. Christine, I know you were watching as a keen observer what was happening in Marrakesh, and I know you were in Paris last year. So can you tell us your first impressions of COP22? Well, it was very much a working COP. Essentially, the Paris Agreement was ratified and came into effect faster than most countries and most people expected and so the rules that underpin it have yet to be written. So Marrakesh was very much a working meeting about getting everything started uh, in terms of writing those rules and one of the outcomes 
was to say that that has to now happen uh, in the next 12 months, working very hard in all the various sectors, 2018, to put that rule book in place. So that's the first thing. Second thing, there was a good deal of optimism, uh, but particularly in NGOs, in business and in sub-national states. So in other words, uh, in the Australian context, um, things like the ACT in South Australia signed up under the High Level Climate Champions Agreement. Um, that was a 2050 pathway platform to long-term net carbon zero, climate resilience, sustainable development and so on, whereas Australia didn't. Those two uh, particular entities did. And when you come to businesses, you see uh, companies like um, Australian Ethical Investment, Infogen Energy, the Teachers uh, Mutual Bank, uh, Investor Property Group, uh, they all basically signed up to the same thing. But so did Westpac and Origin Energy, which gives us some leverage to pressurise them. So I think the overall outcome is that there was a lot of hope, there was a lot of enthusiasm, there was a lot of effort to underpin the Paris Agreement, but reality check, we're still on track for more than three degrees of warming. Yeah. The, uh, the intended uh, nationally determined contributions are nowhere near aligned with two degrees, let alone 1.5, and it's all taking place in a situation where the North Pole is currently... 20 degrees warmer than usual. So when you look at it, there's a lot of good intentions, but there is not a lot of hard-edged, serious transition to the low-carbon, zero-carbon economy, and people keep putting it off, and we've run out of time. Well, look, Australia got a very poor report card from the international community, and most citizens, I think, cannot see how we can meet our Paris commitments unless we systematically close down our coal-fired power stations and the new mines, like if the coal, Carmichael coal mine goes ahead, well, I think it'll cancel out all our efforts to reduce the emissions, won't it? Oh, it certainly will, and I'd like to just say that the Emission Reduction Fund is really cheating ourselves on a grand scale. It basically is being uh, used for land use when you've got 80% of our emissions are from industry and yet 80% of the money, uh, the, uh, the, uh, sorry, the Emission Reduction Fund abatement has come from the land sector and then when you look at that, that's a billion dollars that's gone into avoided clearing at the same time as you've got Queensland and New South Wales clearing as if there's no tomorrow with the changes going on there. And, of course, Australia has never been transparent about its accounting and it uses every loophole and trick in the book to try and pretend that its emissions reduction fund credits are in some, some way credible when I believe that they are not. And then you get um, Australian ministers, you know, you just can't imagine how they can stand up and say these things. But, you know, you have Julie Bishop speaking at a, a session in Marrakesh on women's leadership on climate action. Mm -hmm. You get Frydenberg signing up to supposedly Australia committing to reduce emissions from uh, fugitive emissions from methane at the same time as massive expansion in coal seam gas and very poor uh, mechanisms for actually measuring that methane mm. and you've also got native forest logging going on. So in terms of what has to happen, certainly coal. That is the first thing and I was very glad to see Adam Band introduce a bill 
uh, today. In fact, to stop uh, any new coal mines, new coal-fired power stations, uh, get rid of coal, that has to be our number one priority in terms of the shift to accelerate 100% renewables. And interesting, in Marrakesh, a number of countries did sign up to uh, 100% renewable energy, but of course Australia wasn't one of them. The transport sector is another area where we can do a lot better and the shift to um, public transport and electric vehicles is something we need to be really considering. But if we're going to make this shift in the energy sector, the, the first thing we really have to do, apart from no new coal and you've got no new coal mines and coal exports, is um, change the national electricity market rules. They are the thing that are, that are currently inhibiting uh, the shift to renewables, and that is fundamental, and it's where the fossil fuel industry still has a grasp over how we manage uh, the uh, generation and distribution of uh, energy in Australia, and that has to change very significantly. And the other area, of course, is energy efficiency, and that's why I do take some um, optimism, if you like, from the uh, cities and uh, built environment sector. They are very keen because they see energy efficiency, public transport, more amenity, cleaner air as real objectives, and with cities signing up, uh, that's good. Yeah. Well, look, I can see what you're saying, um, but I was hoping for some international pressure out of this meeting. And when I saw that report card, you know, I've written quite a few report cards in my time. And I always, if I gave a bad report to someone, it would be hoping that the child would work with us and work with the school to sort of improve. You know, you don't just write a could do better carelessly. You really want to shame them into knowing that they could really do better. And I think from what I've understood, that um, Josh Schreidenberg and all our representatives were in fact patted on the head just for ratifying the treaty. So I think they're living in another world, really, in that diplomatic world of polite people telling you, oh, you've done very well, you've just ratified what you said you were going to do a year ago. I want to see some real improvement in yes. our performance. Well, the problem here is that the Paris Agreement has no uh, legally enforceable compliance so its, its legality is that you have once you've ratified it, you are legally obliged to put in your targets, but you are not legally obliged to meet them. And the the enforcement mechanism is supposed to be um, the the transparency and, as you say, the international condemnation for failing to act. But unfortunately, the way these things work, it's it's mostly carrot and not enough stick, I couldn't agree more, where countries just basically smile and welcome any tiny um, progress. That happened, of course, with the United States and Australia, who stayed out of the Kyoto Protocol and didn't ratify for a very long time in the case of Australia. And uh, then you've got the US currently with Trump being elected and that was one thing I didn't mention about the climate talks. It certainly uh, apparently threw something of a pall over the talks, but it also led to countries saying, regardless of what the US does under Trump, we are going to move on regardless. And technically, the under the Paris Agreement, the US ratified in September, and the rules say that you can't withdraw for three years after you've ratified, and then once you've given notice... You can't do it for another year after that. Mm. So essentially, the US can't withdraw from the Paris Agreement for four years. That is technically or legally, but they could 
uh, just ignore it completely and ratchet up their emissions as Donald Trump has said he wants to do yep. with all the pipelines and gas and oil and coal and everything else. So it remains to be seen, but technically they can't pull out. But as I said, because there is no legal mechanism for forcing compliance, it will, and it doesn't seem like he will be shamed by anything. So, as indeed Australia is not shamed by anything, we get away with it constantly. Yeah. Look, I must say, I think a lot of citizens and businesses will take this as a wake-up call and they will fight back. They're rallying around, you know, various causes. Do you think the Greens are part of that in, uh, in America or are all the environmental groups going to go all in their own different directions? Oh, I certainly think that the progressive movement uh, in the broadest sense and uh, the, including that the climate movement, the democracy movement, the social justice movement will all be working to put pressure on the US administration under Trump. But I think the key here is the private sector, that um, the horse has bolted and I hope it's bolted hard enough and fast enough not to be reined in. Mm. Uh, clearly, renewable energy has now staked its claim. It has won the, um, the race, uh, the energy race for this century. Solar has come first in that, in my view. And the price has come down so far that it doesn't matter how much government do to try to facilitate and maintain fossil fuels, uh, the price of renewables will determine what people do. And also the subnational actors uh, like the ACT in South Australia in the Australian context and cities like Sydney and Melbourne can make a huge difference. And a number of large cities have signed up to serious global climate action. So when you put together progressive movements, uh, local or city governments, subnational governments, uh, and seeing the competitive advantage that comes from the better amenity of living in a place which has got clean air, renewable energy, good public transport, efficient buildings and so on, then the momentum is there. And to add to that, you know, the US's position and the EU sort of fiddling around as it has in the last couple of years means that China has emerged strongly in this space and China's not going to let that go. So it's going into its uh, national emissions trading. And so I think next year, as Australia reviews its targets, uh, other countries start gearing up for 2018, we are going to see much more pressure on Australia. But I think the pressure will... Uh, come from what happens in the private sector and the civil society movement uh, more than it's going to come from government. Well, yeah. Well, look, that's very heartening. I really love the way you put that so clearly, Christine. You sort of see it, and yet I keep reading all this stuff about, you know, more coal-fired power stations in India and more coal mines open still around the world. And the global level, I'm wondering if this US withdrawal from the treaty will make it easier for poor countries like India to say, why should we try and carbon, carbon exporters like Australia to say, look, let's just make haste while we can? Well, one of the reasons is air pollution, and that's what's driven China as well. Um, administrations, national governments only hold office if people can breathe and stay alive. Oh, yeah. And one of the reasons why China has moved rapidly uh, on renewables is because people are ill and dying 
premature deaths associated with shocking pollution of air in their major cities and the same thing is happening in India. In terms of your other point about countries like Bangladesh and Vietnam and the Philippines and so on facilitating coal-fired power stations, uh, when you actually have a look at where their money is coming from in terms of all the opportunities they now have under the various climate agreements, uh, you're now seeing a number of those countries actually pull back. And I just I noted in the list of countries, uh, for example, that are looking at um, taking on 100% renewable energy, that are looking at uh, being part of the climate champions, you're starting to see a number of those developing countries shift. And the I think it was Vietnam, the minister said in the last week that, that they're going to reconsider their commitment to coal. So whilst it's true, if all those countries go ahead with the coal-fired power stations currently in the pipeline, then we will exceed the carbon budget for uh, 1.5 and possibly even 2 degrees. So, you know, it, it is a really serious matter as to whether they proceed or not. But I'm starting to see a shift uh, in those uh, economies and that's where we have to work as a progressive movement to help countries like Bangladesh and Vietnam and the Philippines not to proceed with coal but to proceed with renewables. Yeah. Well, look, I heard you speaking at the National Environment Conference in Sydney and we broadcast a little bit little bit of your speech, but you spoke to the movement there and you, you talk now about the progressive movement. And I feel a bit... I don't feel depressed about climate change, but I do feel depressed about the climate movement, partly because we're in media here. We have a huge audience and we broadcast every Monday and Friday. And yet it's like chasing cats to get them to come on. They they don't, you know, they're not all organized. They, you have 20 emails before you get a, a yes, you know, and I find this depressing. And I wonder if there's something insular about these various segments of the movement, which must have been like that at Morocco with all these NGOs, all doing their own thing but not working together. Is that your perception? And do you have a message for the, let's say, the climate movement who might be listening? Some of them might be listening tonight. Well, one of the uh, most disruptive things that governments have done to the whole of the environment and social justice movement over the last decade is basically to remove any funding or support if they engage in advocacy. The result of that has been a whole lot of groups trying to get funding from a small number of philanthropists and or the community to fund them. And so everything has now become fundraising rather than actual advocacy and campaigning. Of course, that's part of it. But every email you get is, can you give us some more money? And also, people don't share information and work collaboratively as they have previously because that is their competitive advantage in terms of going out there and lifting their profile and their funding. And that competition, rather than collaboration, I think has led to siloed behaviour um, and has led to uh, less uh, of outcomes than we might have hoped. And so my message across the environment movement, particularly at the conference where I was speaking, is that you have to go apolitical. You have to call out when people do well or do something good, regardless of which political party they're in, and at the same time criticise 
when anyone uh, does anything bad, regardless of the political party. And secondly, to make sure that you're sharing information and collaborating, and certainly with journalists. A lot of the movement do try to talk to journalists and pitch stories, but the problem here is many editors refuse to publish. I remember when I was leader of the Greens and I would ring journalists to say, please, this is a really important climate issue. They'd say, sorry, Christine, the editor's not interested. So that is a big problem that we've had, um, and hopefully that I, I sense a shift in that, but I would certainly be encouraging anyone campaigning on climate to build the relationships with journalists give them information, let them know when reports are coming out and be available because otherwise you're not going to build up that body of knowledge in the media that is necessary to really go after government. And the classic, I thought, was Frydenberg um, talking about fugitive emissions. I was pleased to see the Australia Institute bring out a report which was critiquing Australia's failure to probably account for its emissions but that just is one report and it dies. We need to continually build on those reports mm. as they come out. Fantastic. Thank you so much for talking to us. I always feel we get an absolutely very solid uh, critique of everything from you because I know you keep absolutely your eye on the pulse, oh, your finger on the pulse and your yeah. eye on the scene. <laughs> thank, thank you, Christine. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much. Okay. That, that was Christine Milne, part of the International Greens Movement. And now we'll have a little break and then we'll come back to hear Martin Wilder from Arena. You're listening to 3CR Radio. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for $49.50 at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. Our next guest is Martin Wilder. He's a partner in the company Baker McKenzie. He's also the chairman of ARENA and several other bodies. He's just got back from the COP22 meeting in Morocco, so fresh off the plane and with a lot of news for us, I hope. So welcome, Martin. Uh, thanks. Very nice to be here this afternoon. Yes, well, I know the listeners will be fascinated with what you have to say. What was your role in Morocco? I think you were advising the government on the negotiations, but how did that go? Yes, yeah, so every climate change negotiation, there's a different government that's responsible for being what's called the COP presidency. So they oversee the negotiations as the host government. So last year, as people will know, it was, it was the French in Paris with the, with the conclusion of that conference reaching the Paris Agreement. This year, um, Morocco have been the hosts. And the role of our team there was to provide advice to the Moroccan government on their chairing of the meeting. So giving them advice around, uh, around some of the international rules, around how the negotiations were going, and really to help them manage 
balancing the, the different positions and interests of all of the countries involved in those negotiations. Well, hats off to you because it must have been a very big organisation. But I believe Morocco is a bit of a leader with renewable energy, at least in their ambitions. And I've, I've read about this, that the condition is that they would receive around $35 billion by 2030 in financial, technical and capacity building support. I'd like you to explain to the listeners how these climate finance mechanisms will work because I assume this is going to flow quite a lot from the Paris Agreement. Uh, no, sure. So under the Paris Agreement, um, every country submits what's called an INDC, which is an individually nationally determined uh, contribution, which in effect is like a mini economic growth plan where the countries have set out what their objectives are in terms of reducing their, their, their greenhouse gas emissions, so their mitigation efforts and goals, and also what they would like to do with respect to enabling their countries to adapt to climate change. So it's, a, it's really a blueprint for climate change mitigation and adaptation. Now, many of the developing countries in those plans have identified key things that they would like to do on their own, but they've also identified a more ambitious or stretched target with respect to reducing emissions or growing renewable energy based on the amount of finance that they may get underneath those agreements. So what countries like Morocco have done is they've said, look, we have a very ambitious plan to increase renewable energy in Morocco. However, we will more than double that target in the event that there is international support and finance and assistance. So one of the key focuses of the Marrakesh uh, conference was really, uh, was really a focus on making sure that that international climate finance, which is promised to developing countries to help them meet the climate change challenges, is actually, actually materialises. So the Moroccans have a, um, a climate finance action agenda, which they'll be continuing to pursue over the coming 12 months after the COP. And in that respect, it's very much a case of of making sure that the money that's been promised towards helping countries deal with climate change is actually delivered. So in all of these developing countries, there are you know, there have been goals set with more ambitious goals tied into this very important factor of climate finance. Mm. Well, I can see an advantage for Europe in that if Morocco and the countries across the north of Africa start pumping up the renewable energy, it could eventually be uh, lighting up Europe. But meanwhile, let's talk about countries that are not on the developing nations list, in fact, the countries that are doing the most pollution at the moment, one of which was Australia. And there was a report card of the 58 countries that account for 90% of the carbon pollution, and Australia came 58th with a verdict of low ambition. And this performance index was put out by something called the European Climate Action Network. And I'd wonder, what were people saying to you as an Australian about how we're dragging the chain? I think, I think those uh, at the actual conference, I mean, Australia actually announced its ratification of the Paris Agreement and also its ratification of the Doha Amendment. So in that respect, there was a lot of positivity about Australia and what, what it's doing. I mean, Australia has agreed to a target that is a fairly robust target uh, towards 2030. And uh, in, in next year, in 2017, there will be a review of our climate policies and the government's made it clear that they're going to look at how those policies sit within the target. But in truth, I think at the, at, at the Marrakesh conference, the real focus was, at least in the first week, the US election results. So people were more 
I, I think, more really trying to work out what a new U.S. government under a Trump administration would do on climate change, whether they would stay within the agreement or pull out. And I think there was at first a lot of concern about that, but as the conference went on, there's pretty much a recognition that regardless of what the U.S. does, all of the larger countries, like, you know, who are very much emitting large amounts of greenhouse gas emissions have to continue to work together to address the problem. And countries like China made it very clear that we need to keep the momentum going. Um, Australia's foreign minister made the same you know, statements that it was very important that we continue the, the, the momentum. And in that respect, I think by the end of the two weeks in Marrakesh, it was very clear with a statement released by the Moroccans called the, uh, the Marrakesh Pro- Proclamation that it was absolutely essential that all countries, both developed and developing, continue the momentum to reduce emissions and to work together on addressing climate change. And I think that, that regardless of what happens in the US, there's also a feeling now that there is so much going on at a state level and with business and with many other governments that um, the, 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 the Paris Agreement you know, is in fairly safe hands, but we have to continue to make sure that we implement that agreement, and that will very much be the focus over the next 12 months. Mm. Well, I sort of find this hard to believe because I think with the Americans, uh, if they do withdraw from the treaty, it'll make it easier for countries like Australia to go slow and countries, you know, because we want to continue exporting our, our coal and gas, but also for poor countries like India to just say, oh, it's a bit too hard if the Americans are not going to lead, well, we can withdraw. I, I find that hard to believe, but I suppose it, it was so f- new for you there, that was rather a shock announcement. I'd like to know a bit more about Australia's, what our effort, if it was regarded as low ambition by that organisation, European Climate Action, were people saying to you privately at least, or just in the meetings you went to, was, was there more required of Australia, do you think? Because I, I sort of hope that there'll be international pressure put, not just efforts from the state governments and efforts from the local governments and businesses in Australia, but international pressure would be perhaps applied to Australia to make us ashamed of being so low ambition? Look, I think that at the conference there was, and to be honest, there was a, a great respect for the fact that Australia had ratified the agreement and mm. it seems very positive. I mean, I think, um, you know, the Foreign Minister made and the Environment Minister made it very clear that Australia is committed to the Paris Agreement regardless of what the US does. And, you know, there was no, there was no sort of um, critique of Australia or, or, or Germany or the US, I mean, sorry, not the US, or the UK or anybody else, mm. China. The focus was on how those countries could come together to continue momentum, particularly with the uncertainty of the US. So I think, you know, you also need to, you know, remember that um, Australia also at the COP announced some important international initiatives where we'll be supporting um, new investment uh, internationally around uh, landscapes in the in the Indo-Pacific and Asia-Pacific. Uh, there was also some good sessions led by Australia on action on preserving rainforests in the Asia-Pacific. And I think in the lead-up to COP, we also saw states such as New South Wales announce that they intend to go carbon neutral by 2050. Um, so there are some sort of significant developments at a state level as well as a federal level. And I think one of the things that comes out of the COP is that you're seeing you know, a recognition that while many national governments set these targets a lot of the action is happening on the ground at the sub-national level, so among the states. So we now in Australia have three states that have signalled an intention to reduce their emissions to zero by 2050, and that all builds into our national target. And 
that sort of momentum will help us you know, push past the current target we've got. But I think, to be fair, the government has always said that the initial target it's adopted will be one that it will continue to review and the 2017 climate review next year is very much um, an opportunity to look at our target and to look at how we approach this going forward. But I think overall, you know, I would say that one of the things for me that came out of the, out of the Marrakesh talks was a, rec- a real recognition that despite what happens in the US, everyone else has to, has to pull together and continue to push. And a lot of the Americans that were there were of the view that there was so much momentum in America at the moment that, you know, regardless what a Trump administration does, you will continue to see action in the US. And interestingly, a large number of US businesses in the middle of a COP put out a statement to say that they are strong advocates of strong action on climate change. So I think there's a lot of momentum and a lot of things happening that, that give you strong hope that, you know, we will continue to address this issue. Yes, this confirms what I've been thinking, that it's states and cities even, local councils who are leading the way and seeming to have much more manoeuvrability and flexibility to act. And I think federal governments are kind of slow, aren't they? Even they, they're slow to move. And so maybe things that are decided now will be uh, fine-tuned a bit later on. So um, you're giving a message of hope, which is good for our listeners. But in your opinion, what were the outcomes for this historic meeting? So I think one of the, the major things leading into the, into the Marrakesh summit was that there was a lot of focus that it was important to have and continue to get countries to ratify the Paris Agreement. As I said, in the, in the middle of the agreement, Australia and Japan both signalled that they had ratified the agreement, which was you know, very well received. In the, it was not anticipated that the Paris Agreement would actually have come into force at the time of the Marrakesh Conference, but in fact that is what actually happened. So a lot of the effort of the French and Moroccans over the course of this year has been getting the sufficient number of countries on board to actually ensure the Paris Agreement took effect. And in that sense, that was a phenomenal um, achievement that when we came into this agreement, sorry, when we came into the conference, you know, a couple of weeks before, before um, the Paris Agreement had actually been ratified. So rather than being a conference on continuing to get ratification of the Paris Agreement, the talks then became a focus on um, really the, the, the need to actually start to implement the Paris Agreement. So... Mm. Rather than being, so rather than being, you know, about how do we ensure Paris is, is, is implemented, sorry, is, comes into effect, it had come into effect, and the focus was on well, what are the processes going forward, how do we further develop the rules and procedures that are outlined in the Paris Agreement, how do we make sure that the, 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 the decisions and momentum on topics such as mitigation, adaptation, finance, transparency, market mechanisms, implementation and compliance, all those issues continue to be addressed and fleshed out. And so a lot of the attention at the COP was around that. It was also around the issues of um, very much around the, the, the broader architecture of other issues such as loss and damage under the Paris Agreement, um, a work plan to get, to get final decisions on issues by the end of 2018, and, and an ongoing sort of dialogue around uh, climate finance, as I said before. Mm. I think finally, I guess the other issue, which is also interesting, that did emerge during the COP was historically we've had this divergence between developing and developed countries, but with respect to Paris Agreement, it moved away from that to have all countries having to take action. We did see a little bit 
of a murmuring during the COP of trying to push back that concept of common and differentiated responsibility but ultimately you know at the end of the COP everyone had come together to reinforce the need for all countries to work together to achieve um, a very a very you know strong outcome on climate change. Well it's very urgent for a lot of those um, smaller actors like the Pacific Islands people who I interview quite a bit on this program and it's very urgent for them so they want to know when the emissions are going to start coming down and I know they've plateaued a bit globally but you know, do you feel that urgency yourself? And can you paint a very quick picture of just how what steps are going to be taken? Like, I think at the Paris Agreement, there was a big move to get fossil fuel subsidies removed. You know, to governments to stop doing that. What do you think the major steps will be? Just in in a nutshell. Look, I think so. One thing I can just say at the outset is that the next COP will actually be hosted by Fiji, and so this in itself ah. is really significant. <laughs> That'll be. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So it will. So Fiji will have a lot of the meetings in Fiji, but the main COP will probably be in Bonn, but shared by Fiji. But this provides an opportunity to really turn the spotlight on the needs and the requirements of small island states, particularly in the Pacific and the Indian Ocean. And it, 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 it's a wonderful thing that Fiji will be hosting it because it gives it an opportunity to highlight some, some of those issues. At the moment, the Pacific Islands, and again, this was a theme of the COP, there's very much a call for action in, in terms of not only reducing emissions, but in terms of helping the Pacific Islands get better access to energy, particularly dealing with better access to water as there are sea level rises one of the challenges for these Pacific Islands is that a lot of the water table areas get inundated with salt water. There's also, you know, a reduced rainfall. So there was a lot of focus on how do you assist a lot of these small island states with with energy access and water access, as well as the obvious issue of of, of how do they adapt to climate change and storms when their islands are, you know, very much low lying and. For many of these countries, it's uh, it's an issue of their future existence. It sure is. Well, um, listeners, I'm speaking to Martin Wilder, and I just have one last question to ask you. I met you, or I heard you speak at the Climate Alliance National Conference in Sydney. You were given an award as a leader in climate risk management. I'd like to congratulate you on that and ask you, after the Marrakesh meeting that you've now participated in, um, we're still on a trajectory to three or four degrees of warming, not at all in the same zone. So what is your message to our listeners, many of whom are in NGOs and you know climate action groups and are really spending a lifetime taking action? So what's your message to them? My message to them would be don't give up to continue to prosecute the case for urgent action on climate change and that we need to continue to do everything we can to address the issue. I think that climate change is here. It's not going away. It's upon us, and we have to now try to limit the impacts. And, and I think that we are in you know, challenging times, particularly uncertain times, and we've got to make sure that we continue to do everything we possibly can to address this issue. Thank you very much. All right, that was Martin Wilder uh, from Baker McKenzie and also chair of ARENA, aren't you? Ah, yes, that's correct. Thank you, Martin. So now, we're going to change our theme a little bit. We're talking about that... 
Marrakesh and international level. But this is the radio voice for the voiceless here. Uh, and I'd like to speak up now for the people who don't have a vote. Some think of the children. I met a class of children who are 10 year old, 10 years old and 11 years old. And they're at a country town called Young. I know their teacher and she invited me to come in and talk to them about renewable energy. And here's what I found. Your project's got lots of pictures of coal and trees being cut down. Is that the main problem, do you think, about non-renewable energy? Yeah, well, once they all get cut down, then, then we mightn't have any oxygen, so then it might just start dying. Yes, if you cut down all the Amazon forests, for example, the oxygen would really be very poor. about transport like cars do you think they'll be in the future they'll be better without coal and certainly without diesel um no not really because then like they won't be as fast as they used to be uh, they'll be going slower so it'll take longer to travel ah, so you think the electric vehicles will be really slow yeah <laughs> well, i don't think that's true there's one i've seen people test drive them they go really fast and the high speed rail have you seen those high speed trains they have in japan yeah, well, well, they go really fast. Yeah, the bullet trains. The bullet train, there you go. So they're all run on electricity, and if you get the electricity from solar and wind, you know, what's the problem? Uh, that like you can like breathe properly with wind and everything. That's right. So do you think it might be better if we just have renewable energy for breathing and for health? Yes. What do you know about that? Um, like renewable energy you can use more than once and like it's better because then you don't have to go out and buy more stuff. That's right, you don't have to dig up more stuff either. Yeah. So I'm in the classroom with two people who've been doing a project on renewable energy. And we've been learning about uh, non-renewable energy and renewable energy. And uh, we have been learning about biomass, uh, wind power and tidal power. Yeah. yeah. Tell me about the biomass because that's the one not many people talk about that one. Uh, it's, I just saw it on the web page, uh, like on a web page, and I got really interested with it. Yeah. And it just hit me, and it's like, oh, this is really cool. Like, how could people, like, people use garbage to make energy? Like, that's pretty cool. How they do that? They do. Yeah. And mm. um, um, what about in farms? Uh, you know, we're in a country area here. Do you think there's a lot of biomass available? Uh, yeah, heat because like how anim- animals like reproduce the all the poop (laughs) and farmers just put into a a, what is the name biodigester yeah biodigester and it comes out with like makes all energy 
powers up the farm yeah. or the house. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty cool. It's cool. I don't think we have it that much in Australia, but certainly in China and Europe, I know they have a lot of biodigesters and they it's it's very good. What about you? Oh, I've been learning about renewable and non-renewable. No, I refuse. <laughs> oh, you, you said a lot before we were having a discussion. It sounds like you're interested in solar power. Yeah, solar power. I like how you can use uh, solar panels to work cars, um, yeah. houses to use electricity instead of burning fuels and gases yeah. to make more pollution. Um, it's easier to use that because then it's not burning more fuel and gases and hurting us more yeah. and the animals here. Yeah, and we need to try not to cut down as many trees. Yeah, so you're worried about the tree clearing. Yes, I, I'm worried about that too. Where do you see that? Um, like in Indonesia, Euro- Europe and all that. A little bit in Australia, not much. Uh, yeah. Okay, well, so I think you, you've learned a lot in this classroom and you're, you're, you're in primary school. So what do you think the future's going to be like for you, like when you're 21 or something? Do you think you'll have jobs that will be different than the jobs of the past? Or Less fossil fuels and more like renewable, instead non-renewable, like fossil fuels, coal, oil. Yes, so those will be, be out. Solution. Okay. Yeah. What sort of work would you like to do? Can you think of some work that you could do that would help this this sort of revolution happen? Engineering, science, um, uh, broadcast, like, uh, um, what to not, what to do to save climate change and not what to do. Yeah. Can any of you, would either of you like to work in that? Have you thought of jobs you'd like to do? Yeah, engineering, um, to help build uh, solar panels and wind farms, um, f- farmer and all that. Yeah, if you're a farmer, you could have some wind turbines on your farm. And certainly the, the jobs of the future, a lot of people are needed to help this go along. It's a huge project to change over from the old fuel that we're all comfortable with, which is petrol and oil and oil, coal and gas. It's a big change, isn't it? But you'll see it. What do you think it'll be like? Different, like super different. Like people that normally use it, it'd be like a huge change for them. It's like... Oh, but we've been using this now, we're just going into a completely different thing, and then we've got to get used to that, it will take a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah, so it's going to be hard for people that do use all those fossil fuels and non-renewable energy. Yes, you're right, and especially in Australia it's quite hard because we make such a lot of money out of coal and gas exporting, so we that's a problem for us, isn't it? But, yeah. but it'll be positive, because on the health side it'll be positive if we can do it. And that's climate change. Yeah. yeah. Well, um... Is there anything else you'd like to say about the future? What do you think uh, you'll do? Like when you have a house, would you build your house differently or do you think the towns you'll live will look different? Yeah, put a lot of solar panels on it. <laughs> what about solar panels? What about insulation? Yeah, I will put insulation. What about you? Uh, just try not to use any fossil fuels and keep on, keep on trying not to make a world a better place. What did you think, we might not use this on the um, radio, but what did you think about the um, plane trips, you know, transport have to be different and there's no 
substitute for fossil fuels in the planes at the moment. What do you think about that? You, does that shock you that you might not be able to take as many plane flights as you'd like to? Uh, not really, because you've got to get used to not using that many planes, not that much, because like, it does pollute much more in the air. Yeah more than the ground because all the all the like it's uh, all the gas is coming out of the engines and making all smoke which is polluting all the air which is coming down onto the earth's surface and polluting every plant and living thing that's right there's a lot of soot too that's causing global warming that's just on all the icebergs and on the snowy situations that's soot from burning forests and that's that's another cause of climate change. What about you? Last comment. Um, it's just every time we have more pollution, we melt the Antarctica and all that, and the sea level will go up one or two more centimetres, and then if it keeps going, it's going to make everything bad. It's just going to go bad. Yeah. I'm really impressed that you're doing this. Do you mind telling me how old you are? 11, 11 and 12. 12. Well, so you see, you're going to be the leaders of the future. You're the ones who know it already. A lot of people who are older than you, they don't sort of know it as clearly as you, which is their, their problem. <laughs> girls here who have all done projects on renewable energy and they don't know that much about climate change they say but I reckon they probably do. Well what have, what have you been researching? I don't, don't want you to read your project but you've, you've got a lot there. You've got a big picture of the world and you've got about renewable and non-renewable energy. Do you think the world is moving towards renewable energy? Can you see it happening? Yes and um, hopefully um, when us, us kids get older, there will probably hopefully be no non-renewable really? energy. That's really good. Well, if you're, what age are you now? 11. 11. So when you're 11, say in 20 years' time, mm. we could hope that it could be all phased out. That would be marvellous, yeah. wouldn't it, worldwide? And it might happen quicker than we know. Yeah. Can you see some signs of it? Have you, do you see any signs of renewable energy just around? Um, yes, around town. Signs about well, the climate change because yeah. of pollution. Yes. And that coal is bringing in nearly every single day. Yes. That's right. We don't perhaps see it that much in this area, but you know it's in the air, don't yeah. you? And it's you know, the cars are pumping it out, and the uh, they're, they're right. There's this pollution, even though it's invisible, we know it's there. Do you do you notice on uh, some? I noticed a few solar panels on houses here. Do you think that's happening a bit more? People, more people yeah. putting that. Yeah. Okay. And, Technically, on schools too. Oh, on schools too. And what about um, wind farms? Have you ever seen a wind farm? Yeah. Wind. Near Sydney, they give us wind energy, not like fuel energy. Yeah. So because it's a good thing, you you don't mind them. I don't really mind them. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for talking to me. You're welcome. And what do you think the future will be like? I think the future will be like um, probably like floating cars or something like that. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um. Um, 
the everything will be like battery, like no fuel or anything. Yeah, batteries would be a big deal. And I said before that I think aeroplanes are a big problem. And all of you have travelled in aeroplanes, and we all do now, don't we? Everyone goes for holidays often on planes. Who wants to say something about that? Is that a bit shocking to you that we might say you can't can't have so many trips? I think the future will be polluted. Polluted? You think we won't actually make a change over to renewables in time? Um, maybe we will, but it won't be that polluted. Yeah. Yeah. It's a hard thing, isn't it? Like you think everybody uses petrol cars and goes in aeroplanes which have petrol and we all have electricity that comes from coal. Well, why should we change? And I think we should change because it is hurting the environment and we're cutting down trees too much and um, aeroplanes in the future, they're probably going to be like really bigger and they're going to be like harder and they're going to... I don't think we're going to stop using oil and gas. You don't think we'll do it? No. I think we'll just use more. Yeah. Okay, what about you? Erin, and I reckon that in like the future that there'll be like less of the fuel filiopsies, mm-hmm. whatever they're called. Oh, yeah. Petrol stations. Petrol stations, yeah. Yep, them. <laughs> <laughs> and then there'll be like heaps of like, it, like it woolies and all that. There'll be like these, like where you plug in your cars yeah. for it to be like recharged. Yeah. And it might have like solar panels on the top or something. I don't know. Yeah, you're right. That's what's happening in other countries. Uh, exactly that. Supermarkets like Woolies will, in fact, have a big car park and you get free charging. So you come to come to their shop because you get free charging for your car. Then you go home. And the best thing is about those electric cars, what happens when you go home? You plug it into your house and then your entire house like has all the lights and all the heating and all that. That's right. So you don't need to buy electricity from the, the coal fuel, the coal-fired power station. You just get it from the solar. Any more thoughts about about what it's going to be like. I think we're mixed here about is it going to be possible to change over? Is it are people going to want to change over or do we have to make a big effort and do it? What, what do you think? I actually don't think it's going to be polluted. I think um, we're going to still use petrol and oil and gas and all that. Yeah. You think renewables won't catch on very much? Uh, no, not really. Maybe. I think that they are going to change over to the to like cars that charge your house and that you have to charge your cars at a petrol station at a charging place or something. Do you think if you're you're young now, say 11 year old uh, years old, do you think in 20 years you might be the ones who have to invent things? What would you like to invent? Um, I don't know what I would invent. <laughs> I'll come back to you. Um, maybe flying cars where we will have to use petrol and yeah, and um, maybe boats. They might have um, underwater boats that <laughs> that um, are not like 
better not like submarines, but they're... <laughs> well, they would be submarines if they were underwater, but we have to think of ways to not use the coal. You know, I'm sure inventors will do it. There are people out there, they're just dying to get this, you know, get this going. That's the people I usually interview. They, they're really very keen to get it started. Are you, are you keen if, if people, other people would invent it, or are you keen to be part of it? Yeah, well, I've always, like, when I was little, I always thought about making, like, this giant, like, circle pod thing, and you can, like, put plants and stuff in there, and then you just plant them, and then they'll, like, automatically grow. Like it's um, hydroponic or something, is it? Like the with the like I, I don't know. It's just in my mind. Oh, you're not wrong. There's one I've heard of. It's just started in South Australia, which is to grow tomatoes in the desert, and it's all desert, and they get the seawater. The seawater is pumped in, and the solar panels on the roof power the engine, so the seawater is turned into fresh water. So that waters the plants. The sun heats up the plants, and the, and they just grow in this totally it's like a glass house and it's all done with solar power and they grow thousands and thousands of tons of tomatoes in the desert and that's going to take off that's in Australia but they're going to get that in in Africa and other places do you like that idea yeah um I reckon in the future everything will be like bigger in size and everything so like there'll be things that I hear now like TVs and stuff like that and phones, but they'll be, like, bigger in size and everything. <laughs> That's what I think will happen. That's what you think. All right. Well, thank you very much, Phil. It's been really nice. And you've done such a lot of work with, with your teacher here. This is really terrific. So thank you very much to the children at Young. You can see how much I enjoyed being there. Thank you tonight also to the team, Roger, Teddy, Jody behind the scenes, Erin and Andy in the studio. My name is Vivian Langford, and I'd like to also say salut babette to our listener in Mudgee. Thanks to the guests, Christine Milne, Martin Wilder, and those children at Young West Primary School. Their teacher was Miss Meg Derwent, and I think all of them are leaders in these turbulent times. Now, we might have time for just one or two points from the Marrakesh Conference. I'll just read them to you like a bulletin. At the Marrakesh Conference, the Global Peatland Initiative aimed to reduce global or greenhouse gas emissions and save thousands of lives by protecting peatlands, the world's largest terrestrial organic soil stock carbon. The last point from the climate conference was the number of companies making climate commitments through a group called We Mean Business has tripled and grown to a market of over $8 trillion in market capitalization. So just remember that, We Mean Business and the Global Peatland Initiative. Also, if you're watching TV tomorrow night and you have Foxtel, the National Geographic Channel is starting a new series of programs called Years of Living Dangerously. I saw one of their programs last week at ACME. It was wonderful, very informative. So National Geographic Channel, Fox Hill. Good night, listeners, and now wait for Save Albert Park and see us next week, Monday, when Erin's doing a show on electric vehicles.